We have a dilemma. What is that dilemma? Listen to this here word from uh, Isaiah 52. It says, I'm going to start out right in the middle. You ought to read it from from verse 1. But 52 says in uh, verse 8, says, Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. They shout joyfully together. For they will see with their own eyes when the Lord restores Zion. Now, Zion referring to Israel, okay, his habitation, God's habitation, but, but for you and me, because the Gentiles are grafted in, whenever you see Zion, that is inclusive of us. It's not exclusive of us, but it's inclusive of, of all of his people. Amen? And so when you see God restores Zion, break forth, shout joyfully together, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. Amen? That all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. Amen? It says, Behold my servant, I'm jumping down to verse uh, 13, Behold my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. For he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. Wow. So what's that really saying for us? That means is that in the midst of where we're at today, you know, this is uh, these umbrellas are speaking about the umbrella uh, that we have of God, spiritual umbrellas. We talked about the spiritual, first spiritual umbrella was the word of God itself and what he has ordained and what he has dis- declared in his word uh, over all of creation for all time. And so that was their first umbrella. The second umbrella, which Kevin brought last week, had to do with the authority of the believer. That's you and me. And with that, gave a little bit of a a challenging position, if you will, on the fact that sometimes when Christians sometimes do, is we go around binding and loosing and declaring as if we had absolute authority. But we have a limited authority. We have the authority that God has given to us, and we, we need to understand that because that authority can change based on a situation. So that, in other words, we can have healing. We can't declare healing just by all our authority, even by his stripes that we're healed, because how many times has that not worked? But there comes a time when he says, now, and then he gives us that authority. He gives us an anointing for that purpose. There's an anointing, an umbrella of prophetic, where anybody, all of us, could prophesy. So you'd say, well, that's not me. I'm shy, and I'm quiet, and I don't know this. And I, That's okay. When that anointing comes, it will, it will bubble up inside of you, and it will come forth. That's a prophetic anointing. That's an umbrella where God extends it to whomsoever, whoever he desires. Amen? But today we're talking about the authority of, of government. We're going to speak about spiritual umbrellas. I've had... A lot of people who've, who've come to me and, and have been wondering about who to vote for simply because they're really in a quandary because of the candidates and the situation we have. And nobody's pleased with, with uh, either one of them. And so, you know, that's a question that I hope to answer today, not by telling you who to vote for. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to instruct you to give you the eyes to be able to see and to be able to tap into what God has, what he requires of us as Christians, as believers. So we're going to talk about that. You've heard this little thing about called separation of church and state. A few years ago, I ran into that with a church actually here in town, but it's a church across the United States too. And um, we were going to do something collectively at the school. And they, uh, he just told me that he says he raised his voice in a, in a fellowship of churches setting and said, uh, well, we can't do that. 
I was like, what do you mean we can't do that? It was just a blessing thing for this local school. And he said, well, separation of church and state. And immediately I was just taken back. I was taken back because I thought, what? You know, to hear a pastor talk about separation of church and state, it wasn't that the school was trying to impose anything on us. It was that we were actually being invited in to, um, to, to be a blessing in the, in the school. And to, uh, I can't remember the exact thing that, that we were uh, going to do, but we met with the superintendent, and we actually laid the groundwork for this thing. Now we were meeting with the fellowship of churches because we understood the uh, parameters of what we were being asked to do and given to do in the school system. And then this pastor said, separation of church and state. And, and I was really taken back by that. And I couldn't hold my, I couldn't keep it. I couldn't shut my mouth. How many know that that's difficult for me? Amen? So I couldn't, I couldn't do that. So I had to say, what do you mean separation of church and state? That is one of the, 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 the largest lies that Christians have believed is the idea of separation of church and state that we can't have any influence in government or on government or on policy. See, separation of church and state, when you understand where we came from and the fact that there was a, a church, a religion that had been declared in, in uh, England and that that was imposed on everybody. And so freedom of religion, not from religion, freedom of religion in the United States was a declaration that we would be allowed to worship according to what our beliefs and what our practices were. That means from that time forward. Well, that means we've actually imported, we've actually allowed people to come in with various religious expression, and that's part of the freedom, constitutional rights or privileges. So we do have Muslims, and we do have Jews, and we do have people who, who are, are from various types of faith, if, if they're Buddhists or if they're Hindu, and they practice their religion in under the constitutional provision of that separation that the state can't force us to do religion their way. So separation of church and state is something that's kind of gotten separated and then presented, and a lot of people are believing that we aren't supposed to have any influence with government. But that's not the way it is. So here's the thing. Separation of church and state. Look that up. Find out the facts. Don't settle for the first thing on the Internet, by the way. Okay, do a little digging. Find out the actual what the Constitution says, what it meant, versus what, what people have tried to make it. All right? What is the role of faith in government and voting? These are some questions I started with this couple weeks ago. So here's, a, here's what it is. The role of faith in government or voting is voting is an opportunity to testify or declare your biblical values, principles, and views. Some people call that a testimony. You know, a testimony is kind of worthless when you hold it within yourself. Your testimony is supposed to be evident and obvious. We're supposed to live in light of that testimony. We're supposed to let other people know. And that's what we need to do as Christians is to influence people, including government. Amen? So then the last one was really comparing governing. And I thought about what is government, what is governing, and really it's a stewardship. I'll give you a couple of different definitions in the course of this, this sermon this morning, but governing is really stewardship. So stewardship for you and me means our vineyard or our field, how we manage or influence that crop or the fruit coming forth. That's part of governing. We have a stewardship of our families. We have a stewardship over our lives. We extend that to allow other people to help us in that stewardship of running the country, so to speak. How many of you want to run the country? You really don't, right? I don't either. I want to see that it's run well, whatever in, from the, the smallest local government right up all the way through the state into the federal. I want to see that government, it, it works. And guess what? We could all probably say, it's not working too good. I don't care. That's, we're not talking about party now. We're just talking about there's times where it works good, and then it's not working so good. It's working good. And unfortunately, that's not party, of course, according to which party's in rule at that time. Well, you know what? If you go back and read a little about, about the history of Israel, you'll find out there was a good king and there was a bad king. And then there was a, that his son was a terrible king, the worst of all kings. And after that, his son was one of the best of all kings. 
And you kind of go like, what in, the, what in the world? What didn't happen here from one generation to the next? Why did this one? You know why? Because we have choice. It's one of the great things that God has given us. The freedom he gave us is free will. It's important that we utilize that free will in the proper way. I'm just going to read some of my notes to you because I think I, I put them down the way that they came. I have had people tell me, for example, that I'm too political and that I made them feel uncomfortable. Mon said, this is the most political church they've ever been part of. And I thought, well, what do you mean by that? You know, it's not like we're, you know, pitting ourselves against each other and we're, we're throwing mud like they do in these campaigns. But um, the truth is, is that they, they said it made them uncomfortable. So where do I, as a pastor, get that? As I can tell you, if you'll gain this little open, open up and be careful, I'm going to take care of you today, okay? We're going to end on a good note. But religion is politics, okay? Christianity, when you read the same Bible I read, you're going to see politics throughout. That may be kind of like, I never looked at it that way. That's okay. Don't deny it because I'll tell you, read it. I'll give you some reading to do, okay? So from the Bible, it's, we call it his story or history book that tells us that our very lives begin spiritual, That's in the garden, as God intended it. They degrade to the carnal, still within the garden, or the natural. And God works through people in the midst of government and human institutions to draw us back to the spiritual, which is to our need for a Savior, and delivers us from evil and our own kingdom to the pursuit and fulfillment of his kingdom. Wow, that's a mouthful. That's what it does. He, he's allowed man choice, and from the very beginning when he established, you know they were without sin, that they were perfect, Adam and Eve, when they were created? And they had free will. And some of us might say, well, God, you could have fixed all this by just not giving them free will. But to me, it's part of the greatness of our God is that he's given us free will. And he actually believes, you and me, that ultimately we would choose the truth and we would believe and we would exalt him. Amen? So, why the Bible? I answered that when I talked about God's word to begin with a little bit, but here it is. Listen to this. It's a treatise, which means a narrative, okay, on governance, leadership, wisdom, public service, surrender, sacrifice, and even hierarchy. We have pharaohs and judges and kings and princes. We've got chronicles, which actually detail the kings. We've got satraps, and we've got governors, and we've got senators, and we've got the book of Romans, which talks about the whole Roman empire, if you will. We've got the Greeks, which talks about that which the Romans came in and took over for, right? So we've got the Greek culture. We've got the Romans. We've got the book of Hebrews, which deals with the priesthood. We've got nations and kingdoms and treaties and boundaries and wars and armies and chariots and horses and swords and armor and arrows and commanders and warriors. That's what's in the Bible. And I just hit on a few just off the top of my head. You might think of a few other illustrations where it talks about political things and things we understand in our culture that actually are presented that are five and 6,000 years old. That's because religion, as you'll know it, is politics. Because it's dealing with people, and it's dealing with governance, and it deals with laws, and commands, and statutes, and ordinances. That's what the Bible deals with. One of the most political books is the book of Daniel. It details the span of over four kings. Okay, Nebuchadnezzar starts out in chapter 1. Belshazzar starts in chapter 5. Darius in chapter 9, and Cyrus in chapter 10. Gives us these different kings, and right within the book of Daniel. Now, Daniel, if you remember, was written by the prophet Daniel. It's also the one with Daniel in the lion's den. It's also the one where we're dealing with the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they're uh, thrown into the fiery furnace. And so what you may not know is that the book of Daniel coincides. It's it's a result of the uh, exile the 70 years of exile that was determined because in Jeremiah, he says, you have not listened to me for all these years 
and I am about to do this. And he says, in the midst of that, Jeremiah 29, what we know is, is the portion where it says that, that I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Because he just declared 70 years of exile. 70 years they're going to be ripped from their homeland, and they're going to end up being, being taken over and overrun and dispersed. And so God, just like when he says, come bring in some discipline on you, I'm about to do something that, that's, going to, that's going to hurt you, but I got a good purpose in it. And that's what Jeremiah 29 really comes out of. And he turns it, you'll know it from verse 12, 13, and 14. He says, you'll find me when you seek me, when you search for me with your whole heart. He's coming right back to what he wanted before, before he had made that decree, is he wanted us to be his people and he would be our God. And so in Daniel, it picks up, now they've been dispersed. Now they're under Babylonian rule. And so Babylonian rule, with that, this, this King Nebuchadnezzar, he has this epic dream. It's still pertinent to today, more so than ever. And when I thought of all the political books, I could read your Romans and all that, but you know, too many people don't actually know much about the book of Daniel. Daniel is a book for, for that time period where they were actually in exile. It's running actually through those four different kings. But it's also speaking one, it's one of the most prophetic books about the end times, about the book of Revelation. Some of the things in Revelation actually ties totally into the book of Daniel with prophecy and picks it up and then makes certain decrees. Matter of fact, at the end of the book of Daniel... God says he's shown Daniel certain things, and then he says, that's enough. He says, this will be sealed up and for a time to be revealed. Now, I don't want to get you weirded out with all kinds of prophecy stuff. I just want you to know, if you'll read these chapters of Daniel, you'll see how this progresses and what God gives. I'd like to go ahead, and if you'll pull up, uh, Becky, if you'll put that statue up on the wall for me. This is a statue of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. I actually had a video, which was kind of cool. It showed you a panorama, but we couldn't get that working, so we're choosing an uh, alternate picture. This is a statue that, that uh, in chapter 2 of Daniel, he has this picture, of, and, and he's looking for somebody who will be able to, to tell him what the dream is. Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, and he sees this statue with a gold head and with silver press, uh, uh, chest and a bronze uh, waist and, and uh, iron legs, and then clay and, and iron for feet. And he has this, this picture, and he, he's like Nebuchadnezzar looking for all these wise men, and he's looking for all of these, these uh, sorcerers and his magicians and all those people to declare what this dream is. And he's so angry, he's about ready to annihilate all of them because nobody wants to even take up the issue to tell him. He's not saying, let me tell you my dream, now you tell me what it's about. Instead, he's looking for, you tell me what my dream is and tell me what it's about. Wow, you want to do some prophecy? You want to do some dream interpretation? That's the highest level. I'm not going to tell you the dream and then you tell me the interpretation. You tell me the dream and the interpretation. Well, you better be hearing from God if you're going to do all that. Amen? So here's what happens is in chapter 2, and I'm not going to spend much time here, but I want to give you enough, okay? Here's, here's what it does. It talks about four different kings in the span of, of, the, of these chapters. In this book, when it, talks about the, when it talks about these kingdoms that are going to, going to come, he gives us the gold, which he says, you are the head, Nebuchadnezzar. He says, this is, represents the, this empire right here. But then after that comes this other kingdom, which tells him, dude, you're not going to last forever, and this kingdom won't either. So we call that the silver is the Medo and the Persian Empire. Okay? Now, by the way, Babylonian Empire is around 606 B.C. And then in 536 B.C. is when the Medo and, and the Persian Empire comes in. And then after that, he speaks about this Greek Empire, which came into power in 330 B.C. So here we've got from, from the gold in 606 down to 330 B.C. And then the last one you see is uh, the iron, which represents legs of iron, is the Roman Empire. And so... It, it actually, well, where do you get all that? Well, in some of this, the only one that's not declared is the Roman Empire. The other two are already prophesied. Before they happen, these things are, it's not like news today where we would say, well, you know, North Korea is building up their armies and we're getting ready for an invasion. It wasn't anything. We didn't have that kind of news. What happened is God declared. And he's telling them this is how it's going to progress. In the midst of the governing by the king, here's Daniel. He's elevated to the second 
in position in, in the empire by the end of the book. This Jew is elevated into that kind of authority, similar to Joseph under Potiphar. Remember that? He's out actually elevated to this high level. These are spiritual men who are giving guidance and direction, and in this case, God speaking profoundly. So what we have is we have the gold empire, the silver, which is the Medes and the Persians. We've got the Greek empire. This is history, folks. This is not just Bible. This is not myth. This is real. And then you've got the Roman empire, which first came to power in 27 BC, which that would have been the, the kingdom that, of course, Jesus Christ was, uh, became flesh and was born into. Amen? And then the iron and clay. Some will uh, actually say this says modern powers. Uh, another, uh, another one says end times. Some believe that that's the revived Roman Empire, that the iron and clay represents the revived. So the one, the first Roman Empire was political. The, the second or the last, the iron and clay will be the revived religious. And that's for those who have taken that the Roman Empire has to do with Rome and has to do with Catholicism. And the problem with that is they're missing it. There's, you know why they're missing it? is because what the Bible declares about that kingdom and about what is going to come, we've always associated it with, 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 uh, with them, but we haven't taken into account things like ISIS. We haven't taken into account, you know, for example, Nazi Germany wasn't figured into there. See? So what happens is I just want to tell you that when people are saying and acting like they know it all about, you know, even the statue, including me, is we only have a little bit of revelation. Because the truth is, is God is going to declare and he's going to move and those kingdoms that will emerge, whoever that iron and clay is, all I got for them is a warning. Because you see that big old boulder coming toward that statue? The, in the book, of, in the chapter 2 of Daniel, it says, and by the way, this great statue that you saw, it's all coming down, dude. It's all coming down. And that boulder, which is not carved out by human hands, it says, he says, it will come forth and it will crush the feet of iron and clay. And the whole statue tumbles. What well, it says in there that that's going to be Jesus Christ. He's the rock who crushes all of these other kingdoms. So that includes whatever kingdom is next. If you want to call that the United States, we're in that position right now as the world power. No matter, no matter what size our military, our, what, what condition our economy is, we're still largely recognized as the world leader. Now, that could be our country, but that could be the end of times. That could be several different op options. But one thing is, is that last one will rule what was known of the, these empires. That kind of ge geographically puts it over in the Middle East. That puts whatever that influence is that's going to dominate that region of the world seems to be the one power. When that happens, that's going to be when Jesus the rock comes, this time not as a suffering servant, not as a little lamb, but comes as a conquering king. Woe to those who are with child in that day. Woe to those who continue to re reject Christ. Amen? So here's the thing. In the book of Daniel, it talks about the events of the end times. It talks about the worldly, secular kings. It, they, here they are proclaiming the power and the sovereignty of Daniel's God. If you remember when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in the fire, that it says that when, when they looked down in, they saw four people. Not three, they saw four. And so here they were, and they were not burned. Though when the fire flame come up for those who were tending to the fire, remember it lashed out and burned them, consumed them. So here you are in the midst of that same fire, and yet they're walking around, and they see somebody that's in there. Well, after that incident, the king declared the glory of God. With this issue here with Daniel and the lion's den, he didn't want to do it. The king didn't want to put him in there. And, and so he prays, he says, God, you know, like in my paraphrase, Daniel, I hope your God's not asleep on this one, dude. I hope he, I hope he protects you. And guess what? He comes the next morning and it's kind of like, man, I'm really hoping that Daniel, dude, is still alive. And when he is, the king says there is no God like Daniel's God. He makes an, a, a declaration to the, to, the whole, to the whole city about Daniel's God. You'll, you'll see it for yourself when you read it. It tells of exploits that godly men in government did. 
I named them, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel specifically, and what we will do. It tells us to persevere, to pray, and patiently wait on God who is faithful. It tells us of persecution and the staunch resilience, trust, adherence, and faith of people of God who pursued his will above all else in spite of threats and attempts to take their lives. See, when they first came into the kingdom, one of the first things in the book of Daniel he talks about is wanting them to eat the king's food so that they'll be well taken care of. See, they're not going to be peasants. They're not going to be the slaves. They're not going to be, we want you to be healthy. And so he wants them, when they're called into service, to have this diet. We could call it the choice food, not the welfare food. And so what happened is, is that instead of, instead of that, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, no, no, we, we don't want to, we're not going to eat your food. We're going to eat food that is consecrated to our God. That's where we get the Daniel fast, by the way. He ate nutritious food that was good for him, not prepackaged. A little different take on it. So he says, no, no, you eat your food. And the, the man who is in charge of this to see that, that they're well cared for, he says, Daniel says to him, just give us, give us this couple weeks on our own diet and see if we aren't as healthy and see if we aren't just, we're doing fine. And so that's what he did. And in the end, hey, God took care of them. And they were healthy and actually were healthier. So those are a couple things that are coming forward. See, remember, here's what Matthew Henry says about this. He says, by the way, he's, an, he's a commentator from, from a long time ago, but he's, he's one, uh, one of those that has been uh, spot on. So he says, this, this image represents the kingdoms of the earth that should successively rule the nations and influence the affairs of the Jewish church. The head of gold signified this kingdom. So that's part of where we, we come up with. But he says this, the stone cut out without hands represented the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, which should be set up in the kingdoms of the world upon the ruins of Satan's kingdom in them. Somebody say hallelujah. This was the stone which the builders refused because it was not cut out by their hands, but it became the head cornerstone or cornerstone, amen, of the increase of Christ's government and peace shall there be no end. The Lord shall reign not only to the end of time, but when time and day shall be no more. As far as events have gone, the fulfilling this prophetic vision has been most exact and undeniable. Speaking about the statue and these kingdoms that were to come. Future ages shall witness this stone destroying the image and filling the whole earth. Amen? So guess what? What America really needs is not the great, the, the next greatest president. We don't need Congress to get together and finally begin to do something. We don't need necessarily unity uh, uh, and bipartisanship and all that kind of stuff. What we need is we need the administration of God. We need his rule and reign. For he alone, he alone is perfect. And we need to vote in agreement with his appointment of authority because the Bible declares that all authorities have been appointed by God. Whoa! What about wicked guys? What about bad guys? What about liars and thieves and crooks and, you know, all... all? Yep, been appointed by God. And you read the Bible and you'll find out that one king to another to another, and, and God called these kings, just like he did the kings of Daniel, to persecute, to discipline the people of God who had rejected him. That ought, to, that, ought to, that ought to be a concern for us in our country. We need a person who will accomplish God's purpose and one who will honor God and pursue his heart, his righteousness, and his kingdom. So when you consider the candidates, here's what I've been instructing people. I believe this is true. You've got to consider the party platform, not just the candidate, because in this case, we can go by some sort of I like you, I don't like you, um, the problem is that both of them seem to have their own messes, right? So you go to the party platform, and that party platform is a declaration of their values, principles, core convictions by which they intend to govern. That's what a platform is. So in our case, if we just go by a two-party platform, you've got the Democratic platform that is set by a committee for this term of this, uh, this president every four years. They, they get to come up with another platform that says these are our core beliefs, these are 
These are how we're going to govern. And so it's very clear to the constituents that these are what we stand for. Okay, their their values, their intent to govern. Same way for the Republican National Committee. That's what they determine. They determine the platform. This is a platform. This means this is where I'm I'm standing on this. This is how we will govern from this position. You might even call it an ideology. Okay? So what happens is, is that you end up looking not the candidate, because that leads us to say, I'm not voting at all, which would be almost to say, I'm not sowing any seeds. You reap what you sow, and if you sow nothing, see what I mean? Now, I've had people complain about government, and yet they've never voted. See, I think it's like, shut your mouth. If you're not willing to vote, and you're not stepping up to the plate that way, then you shouldn't. You just should be silenced, as you were when it came time to voice your opinion or your choice or your value. Now, that might step on some of your toes in here, and maybe you've taken it that you want to be a conscientious objector, but by saying nothing, you say something. So here's what we end up with. The single biggest issue, this is where I'm walking on thin ice. Say thin ice, Pastor. The single biggest issue in this or any election for a Christian, is the God-honoring moral choice. Moral choice. Beyond candidates and qualifications, the economy, border security, or trade, it is a matter of faith. The stewardship of our gifts and free will. And it's about the moral issues of our day and the influence we've been given. I want you to take a minute and I want you to watch this with me. Might have been since, like me, I was in high school last time I saw this video. I think it was Homek who talked about sex education. So, no, we're not going to go too far with this. Let's watch this short little video. What's the moral choice? What do you think? Do you know 93% of abortions are performed due to social inconvenience or unwanted pregnancy? But yet when, when people talk about abortion... They speak about incest, and they speak about, um, they speak about rape. And, and why should this person have to endure those circumstances? But yet, folks, 93% of the time, it was a matter of, I'm not ready for this yet, or it surprised me. And what's happened is, is you know, the Supreme Court has decided that the legality abortion was based on when does life begin. If you remember, Roe v. Wade is what they called the decision. And Roe v. Wade was simply that uh, it's, it's evolved into women's choice over what happens with your own bodies. Sounds good because it gets us in an uprising about somebody else telling me what I can or can't do. But that's kind of still called selfishness. See? So the truth is, is that when, when, when Roe v. Wade comes forward, the Supreme Court didn't have a law on the books to judge. So they had to take something what, which was a precedent, which is what brought the case, and they said in their dissenting decision, which I believe was a five-to-four vote, they, they said in the, the dissenting opinion was this, is that we are not the ones who can declare when life begins. So here's what they did. They empowered Congress, which is what the legislative branch is supposed to do. They empowered Congress to go and make a law with regard to when life begins. And if they would do that, then the Supreme Court would hear the case once again, but that question has to be answered. And the Supreme Court said, we are not the ones to legislate or establish what that law is. Are you with me? They said, when there's a law, we'll judge the merits of the law. But until then, this has to stand. And so the the law of the land is that the woman has this right because they don't know when life begins. Well, as Christians, we believe that life begins at the moment of conception. We believe that conception doesn't happen outside of the will of God. And that means in, in incest, in rape, in, in, uh, in any kind of birth defect, whatever is coming forth is the fruit of the womb, and God is in charge of the fruit of the womb. Now, if we go way back, folks, even in some of our day, you would have been a bastard child if you were born outside of wedlock. God's plan was there to be a man and a woman. They would be husband and wife, and they would conceive and bring forth a child. That's the God-ordained way. What's happened, though, 
is that we've removed God, and so thereby people now live together, people sleep together, people, we've got, we've got people, what was it, 14-year-old girl who, who has just given birth, 14 years old. You think you're ready to be a mom? No way. Grandma and grandpa ready to take that up? Oh, yeah, they'll do it. But you know what? That's because they chose to, to have sex, protected or otherwise, outside of marriage, the institution that God gave by which reproduction would happen. See, we're all whacked out. We're all messed up. And because we're messed up that way, because God is not sovereign in, in the way we live our lives, we've got a twisted culture. And we're no different than the days of Daniel. We're no different than the days of, of Noah. We're, when, when he's looking, where, where are some righteous people? Hello, they're in churches all over the United States. We need to make a decision about how we will, how we will govern based on Christian values once again. And yet with freedom of religion, hey, Christian values aren't Muslim values, and they're, they're, not, uh, they're not what Hindus go by or, 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 or what uh, uh, Buddhists would go by. But see, for us, many would say that we are founded on Christian principles. So irregardless, we got a decision about life. And that, that comes down to a moral decision. Deuteronomy chapter 30 says this. says, I have set before you today, God speaking, life and prosperity and death and adversity, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, that you may live and multiply, and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. But if your heart turns away and you will not obey, but are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You will not prolong your days in the land where you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess it. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today, and I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice, and by holding fast to him. For this is your life and the length of your days, that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give to them. See, we've got a, a choice, just like we get to with everything else in our life. We get to choose. God says, you're giving, I'm giving that freedom to choose, but here's what I want you to choose. See? He doesn't leave us saying, well, I don't know which one. It's 50-50. Toss-up. He says, no, no, choose this, because this has, this has blessing tied to it. Choose this. This, this is the curse. See, many people have chosen the curse because we can deny because of the grace of God, especially in our culture, the grace of God, which allows us to still sin. And we don't have a lightning bolt coming in at us. We don't have the ceiling fall in on us. The earth didn't open up and swallow us. So thereby what happens is we end up thinking somehow that it's okay, it's acceptable, and maybe there is no God. See, that's what a godless culture is coming to, to each your own. You get to decide for yourself. Don't impose your stuff on me. See? Oh, I know. That's Siri talking. It's all a mystery to me, she says. Government. The law is a tutor. I'm just going to read this. This is what I woke up at 439 this morning for. Government, quote, the law is a tutor that leaves us with futility, frustration, and conflict between flesh and the spirit. Two kingdoms vying for supremacy. Am I going to walk by the Spirit or am I going to walk by the flesh? Am I going to do what God wants or am I going to do what I want? See? The Bible says that one will end and one will reign forever. Which kingdom will you live your life for? Got to answer that question. God makes his will and desire known. He says this, I will be your God and you will be my people. I will be your shepherd and you will be my sheep. And then he tells us in the New Testament, pray then this way. Our Father who art in heaven, right? Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our 
sins or trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass or sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Forever and ever. The ultimate goal of government is representation of the people. The indictment against our government is the two candidates and the contentious spirit that exists and is manifest in our current, in our culture, thereby in our leaders or representation. In other words, it's our fault. What we see in this culture, this, this mudslinging that's going on, most of us would all, how many would, does everybody pretty much agree this is the nastiest campaign we've ever watched? It's the nastiest. You know what? We have, we have been saying this for a couple of years since Joel did research a few years ago for me on the elections, 51 to 49 percent, 50.6 to, 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 to 49.4, whatever the numbers are, that's how our country has been. We are on the cusp of a civil war because that's what's happening is that the representation is now we've got people who are, let's say, godless, wicked, evil, whatever you want to call them, or without God, atheists. You got that percentage, it's almost 50%. Or at least they're not voting according to their biblical beliefs. See? So what we've got is we've got Christians who are voting based on your pocketbook or your wallet. Or you're voting based on certain other issues that might seem like they're really important to me. The economy seems to be number one. It was in 2008, by the way. And, and, and the vote came forward then because, hey, this president failed, this party failed, let's do this based on the economy. But meanwhile, that president, who happens to be our president, was declaring what he was going to do with life in the womb and how he was going to support the, the total, you know, we're going to reverse these decisions that protect life. And Christians are voting accordingly. Why? Because you were born a Republican or you were born a Democrat? What about what the Bible says? What about how God feels about all this? And we ought to be saying... You know, if our borders are overrun or if there's a 30-foot wall there, but we're dishonoring God with the decisions that come down to the moral decisions, we've failed. And no wall is going to be tall enough. See? And if we have no wall and we invite everybody in, but if we continue to allow the perversion of Christian beliefs and we end up fading into the shadow, we would have failed. So God's given us this opportunity, and part of that opportunity is in the the law. See, here's what happened. The law could never keep the people, and people can never keep the law. Can I have an amen? The Bible says that God will write his laws on our hearts. That is why even in such a contentious culture, in such danger as anarchy, which is a lawless culture, There are opportunities for unity, peace, faith, hope, love, and forgiveness. They are all the foundation of relationships, and God has given us these inalienable rights for the purpose of not just the pursuit of life, liberty, and justice, but also peace, which can only be found in right relationship with God and thereby one another. See, when we get God right, We can get the loving one another right. Amen? Because then it's not a keeping of the commandments. It's not a principle of the law. The laws have been written right here on our hearts. And thereby, we would take care and believe in the sanctity of life from the womb to the grave. From the womb to the grave. No matter what's happening with borders or what's happening with our economy or what's happening with any other situation outside of the decision about what life is and who God is. Amen? Okay, I'm going to wrap up, but here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to read Galatians chapter 5, all the way 13 through 6.10. Galatians 5.13 through 6.10. Do that for yourself. That's where it talks about, first starts out real quick. For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Amen? That's how it starts out. It goes on into talking about the deeds of the flesh, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, 
enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissension. Wow. And he says that those who practice such things won't inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Amen? If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Amen? And so then it goes on from there, and it talks about, in Galatians 6, talks about our burden and our need to, to bear the burden with one another. Amen? Now let me finish with these. Political requirements for every Christian. Be subject to government unless it asks us to disobey God. It asks us to follow the laws of the land so long as they don't, they don't come against the order of God. So with that, that's, I can give you references. I'm not going to because you may not keep up with me. Subject to government unless it asks us to disobey God. Two, grant proper, proper honor to those who are in authority. Okay? That's Romans 13, 7, by the way. To do right and cooperate with government authorities whenever possible. Pay taxes. Yes, the Bible says pay taxes. Jesus did, right? Pray for government authorities. That's 1 Timothy 2. Six is evangelize and disciple government leaders, right? Then last one is be informed and vote for candidates and issues which will, to the best degree possible, uphold God's purposes for government. Here's what I don't want you to do. I don't want you to regret it come November the 9th because of the outcome. I don't want it to be, oh, we might say, oh, gosh, our candidate didn't win, whoever that is. But whoever won... By the time they duke it out and get done with anything other mess going on, I will be able to say, God has chosen this leader. God has chosen this leader, and it's going to be either for good or it's going to be for bad, and we won't know that right off the bat. It could look good, and it could get bad, right? It could be bad, and it can just get worse, okay? Or it could get better, amen? So here it is. These social psychologists, they studied regret. They found that in the short run, we tend to regret the things we did more than the things we didn't do by a margin of 53 to 47%, right? Pretty close. But in the long run, our inaction regrets, okay, outpace our action regrets 84% to 16%, okay? We all cringe over the things we've done, but at the end of life, our most significant regrets are more about what we didn't do. Wish I would have went skydiving. Wish I would have rode a bull named Fu Manchu. See, I wish I would have. I wish I would have. Oh, I wish I would have voted. I wish I would have taken a stance. I wish I would have read the Bible. I wish I would have known and understood better. Pastor Joel doesn't want to stand before God and him say, why didn't you talk about this issue when you had the opportunity? It's my it's not only my privilege, it's, it's something that I'm called to. It's a charge that I'm given, is that when I see the enemy approaching as a watchman on the wall that I'm supposed to declare to you, and then what you do with that is on your own heads. And finally this. This was an excerpt from a, it's a forum that I get on truth and culture. His name is Jim Dennison, and he writes these couple principles I want to leave you with today. Worship team, you can come on up if you're ready. Number one, what can we do in, in, as far as assurance in voting as a Christian? Number one is to help manage your field or vineyard by exercising your godly freedom to choose good over evil, to let your light shine, and to help cultivate righteousness. Okay? It's what people like Joseph and Moses and David did. To, number two, gain knowledge of the candidate and their party's platform and apply wisdom in casting your vote one that honors God in principles and moral values. Number three, decide how you will vote, but show those who disagree with you gentleness and respect. We shouldn't be name-calling. We shouldn't be be bringing people down and smacking them around with our tongue, with with our words and attitudes toward those who may disagree with us as far as our, our, our position goes or our principles. But understand, our source of where we got them from, that is truth. Amen? So do it with gentleness and respect. Number four, pray for the candidates to be people who can say sincerely, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And measure what both candidates say and do by biblical truth. That's James chapter 1, verse 25. 
measure, thank you, measure what both candidates say and do by biblical truth, not by how it makes me feel. Five, decide that you will speak God's word to those you, who you influence while praying for our, gener- our nation to turn to the Lord. That's Jeremiah 18.20. And here's the final one, which I think is one of the best. Refuse to be discouraged. Refuse to be discouraged. Tell somebody, refuse. Refuse to be discouraged. Victor Hugo, some of you may know who he was, but he wrote this. Have courage for the great sorrows of life and patience for the small ones. And when you have finished your daily task, go to sleep in peace. God is awake. God is awake. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. Peace, unity, integrity. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. And Father, we acknowledge that that our country, we believe, has been birthed. We are blessed beyond any nation in the land, in, in in the world. We have a land which is rich in so many resources, God. We, we could literally just exist by ourselves. Not the way we want it, not the way you want it. But God, we acknowledge that you have blessed us. And you've given us this freedom of worship, this freedom of religion, that God, um, you have put us in this place for such a time as this. And God, our, you want our influence to continue. And you want it to grow and be greater. And we want, it ultimately means your influence, your light shining, even in the midst of the darkness. So we agree that the darkness cannot comprehend it. The Lord, the darkness doesn't overtake it. We agree that that absence of light, and yet you've called us all to be light in the midst of this generation. So God, help us not to be self-righteous. Help us not to go out wagging the finger at people. But Lord, let it be that confident assurance that we have that as we declare your kingdom, that God, you're the one who vindicates us. You're the one who's going to reveal yourself to us, in us, and through us. And God, we pray for for Hillary Clinton, and we pray for Donald Trump, that God, whoever this is that you have decided, that God, they are not beyond your ability to change the course of what their beliefs are and how they might govern. And so, God, we pray for unity to be restored in our country because truly, united we stand. And divided, we fall. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be known to us. Lead your people in all truth, God. And give us, God, no regrets at the end of the day. In Jesus' name, amen.